Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Let's start with the hard facts. The Agrilites do not play ska. They are a reggae band influenced specifically by late 60s skinhead reggae music, though modernized and given a punk rock edge, hence their descriptor, dirty reggae. If you can't tell the difference or even care, take a seat and listen to our conversation with two members of the band, Jesse Wagner and Roger Rivas. Hopefully by the end you will. The band formed in 2002 in Los Angeles and did surprisingly well for a group rooted in a hyper-niche subgenre. In fact, they inspired many skinhead reggae bands to form in the 2000s. Okay, straight off the top, Agrilites are not a ska band. Not ska. Do not call them a ska band. Yeah, they play with ska bands all the time, but not a ska band. They play old reggae, not the reggae that most people think of when you say the word reggae. Dirty reggae. Dirty reggae or skinhead reggae is, is kind of, they call it dirty reggae, but it's really like skinhead reggae. Dirty reggae is their sort of take on it. It's a little faster, a little bouncier, a little poppier than the 70s reggae stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think because uh, because it's less popular and because all that music from the 60s, whether it be rock steady, early reggae, ska, it has a very similar, similar vibe to it. So People who are into those music, styles of music tend to all be into those different styles. Yeah. And then uh, 70s reggae, dance hall, those styles have a little bit of a different audience. My favorite thing about the Agrilites is while they do play this, you know, dirty reggae, skinhead reggae style, Jesse's vocals set them apart for being a little bit more gruff, almost punk vocals. Yeah. And then, and then Roger's keyboards, like Roger's organ parts always sound like kind of haunting. Mm-hmm. And I think the combination of those two things with their sound like set them completely apart from every other band. I want to start by talking about your guys' appearance on Yo Gabba Gabba in like 2006 when you played Banana. Hell yeah. I love that performance. I would just love to hear this, how that all came to be and like what it was like behind the scenes. Okay, I could tell that. So 2005, the Aquabats invited us uh, 
on tour. It was a five week tour going across the United States. Mm-hmm. And we were, we, we started the band in 2002 and uh, we toured Europe a lot more times. We never actually toured us other than like weekend things here and there. Really? You didn't do like a full us tour ever? No, no, never. Oh. It took three years to do that. The main reason is because the style of reggae that we play is inspired by more of the 60, you know, late sixties, early seventies style. And uh, a lot of the kids or people in the, you know, early 2000s weren't too familiar with, with, you know, you talk about old school reggae. Not too many people knew what that was uh, across the country, I guess. Uh, L.A. knew and New York knew, but mm-hmm. in the U.S. It was, it was hard to get a tour unless you were playing more like, you know, the third wave style of ska. Mm-hmm. Europe got it better. Yeah, Europe knew it because, you know, that, that whole thing like, you know, with the UK and, and the Jamaicans, uh, you know, immigrating over to the, to the UK and, and the skinhead reggae thing evolving out of there and so on. It, it grew all over UK going over Europe. So the Europeans knew what we were doing more than the United States folk. The United States folk would, you mention reggae and they go, oh, like Bob Marley. You know, and that'd be about it. Or <laughs> you mention reggae and they go, oh, yeah. Or you mentioned ska and they say, oh, real big fish, you know, or or no doubt or things like that, which we weren't doing any of that. We were doing the old school stuff. So, yeah, it was hard to it was hard to get a U.S. tour. So the Aquabats invited us on that five week tour across the United States. And uh, that was our first tour in the U.S. And uh we were playing the banana song. The banana song is, I think it's originally like an old Calypso tune. Hmm. And, but we, we were covering that song based off of a, a group called the EK Bunch, which is Roy Ellis from Simmerip, the, the, the pyramids actually. Yeah. Yeah. Originally it was a, a song by uh, the EK Bunch, Mr. Roy Ellis. And I, I think Jesse kind of nailed it right there. Uh, you know, if you listen to the original it's definitely far from anything that, that should be played on a kid's show. And so we kind of altered the, the lyrics a little bit, you know, yeah. uh, kind of turned it into a potassium kind of thing. And, uh, but, but it's a catchy tune, you know. I, I think there's a reason why I would say, you know, monthly, if not weekly, I get reminded by different people that their kid is, is jamming to it and they'll send a screenshot or a video. And so um, it's, a definite, it's definitely a catchy tune and the kid's uh, – it seemed to dig it. Yeah, so Christian, the singer of the Aquabats, is uh, the creator, if not one of the creators, but of that show, Yo Gabba Gabba. So he was telling me in the middle of the tour, like, hey, man, I can't really talk about this right now, but I'm developing a children's show, and I want the Agrolites to be on it. And I was like, all right, yeah, dude. <laughs> what, what, what song? You know, I'm hoping it's like, you know, an Agrolite song or something. And he's like, the song that I think would be great for the show would be the banana song that you guys do. Now, right off my head, I'm like, no, dude, that like Roger said, like, this isn't a kid's song. This is like slack, <laughs> slack reggae. Yeah. A dirty song, you know, like, like a lot of those Calypso <laughs> songs, like big bamboo and so on, you know? Yeah. I'm like, dude, we can't, we can't do the banana song, dude. That's not, that's not a proper song, you know? He's like, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. I got a vision on it. We'll make it work. You know what I mean? Like, we're going to make it work. So that was it. We did the five-week tour. We 
got to know the Aquabat dudes really well. Ended up being really good friends with them. I believe it was in 2006. I thought it was 2007 mm, okay. that we did that we did the uh, the actual film or the TV show. Mm-hmm. But Christian called me about a year later, and uh, he goes, "Hey man, remember I told you about that kid show on the tour?" And I was like, "Yeah." He goes, "Well, we could talk about it now. I'm able to say everything. It's going to be on Nickelodeon. It's going to be all over the world, and." The first episode, we're going to have the Aquabats do Pool Party, which is, you know, an Aquabats song. But we want you guys to be the next band on it. And it's going to be the, uh, whatever, the happy, fun music hour or whatever that DJ Lance announces before every band performs. So it was like, yeah, let's do it. So that, that, that's it. They, they uh, scheduled a date. They called the band down to, to record it. We went I, somewhere in Orange County some studio and i remember that there's a bunch of bananas like there's like (laughs) hundreds of bananas in in front of the screen you know that we're singing in front of they sent one of their runner dudes or somebody down to the grocery store to buy every single banana that you know like bunch (laughs) of bananas that he can to put on the put on the stage in front of us i remember also like our bass player he he was tattooed like on his arm and on his neck this is like you know early two. 2000s like so they had him wear like a long sleeve shirt to cover his tattoos up <laughs> like things like that but <laughs> it was really awesome man it was like one of the best times ever you know uh yeah i mean that that was about it we uh got on the stage and and did our thing and uh we recorded the uh we recorded the track separately than the we didn't do it live you know we recorded sure. it in the studio do you remember the studio we did it at roger no, nah, I don't remember. Costa Mesa, maybe? Oh, Yeah, somewhere in Costa Mesa. I think it was might have been, I don't want to say the wrong the wrong studio, but I think it might have been that old Hurley studio or something. But anyways, yeah, it's like Roger was saying how he still gets emails and or, you know, messages or whatever, and text and uh, Facebook, you know, messages saying, yo, fan, I think it's like once we did that show, it broadened our, our uh, audience. Because we were like really subcultured within just the skinheads and the rude boy, like yeah. old school, like really like the old L.A. scene. Nobody really knew our, our our sound or what we were doing. But once we were on that show, you know, it was like it wasn't just uh, punks and skins and psychobilly kids come to our gigs. It was like it was like, you know, moms and their children. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was it ended up. It, it grew it, you know, so big respect to uh, Christian Jacobs and the Aquabats and the whole Yo Gabba Gabba crew for putting us on the show. The skinhead reggae stuff is like it was, it is and was very subculture, but it is like more, it's in a way it's more accessible than like 70s reggae. Yeah. Like that song is such a pop song. And so many of those songs are just so poppy and so hooky. Like it's almost weird that that's the, that's the underground the underground sound. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have you ever heard the original version? Yes. Yeah, it's it's awesome. Way better than us. <laughs> Way better. Than- <laughs> I was actually like I don't know what the true story is, but my understanding was that it was the same band as Simmerip, but they went through several names for like legal disputes until they finally landed on Simmerip, which was Pyramids backwards, which was one of the names. Yeah. It's all one band. You're right. It's just the kind of switched names. Um, I didn't know it was for legal, but I, I would assume that too. So 
And I have no, uh, we're, we're friends with Roy Ellis, and to this day, I don't think we ever asked him what EK Bunch even stands for. Yeah, I think they've only, the only thing, there was um, Banana, and then there was like uh, a song called Free, that was the B-side. That's the only thing, to my knowledge, that the EK Bunch has officially released. Yeah. I've heard from people that it's uh, Laurel Aitken, or or Lord, uh, what's his name, uh, like, just like old old school guys like Calypso stuff before uh, mm-hmm. before Roy Ellis even did it. So as soon as you did um, Yo Gabba Gabba, did that permanently change the lyrics to the song for you guys? No, it all depends. <laughs> I mean, the the lyrics aren't that like that's the thing. It's always kind of like uh, like the Big Bamboo. You know that song, the Big Bamboo. It grows big and long. Mm-hmm. The Big Bamboo. It's like. What do you call that? Cliche or, or, or double uh, entendre? Double yeah. entendre, where it's like, okay, it it means this, but it could mean something else. That's how the banana song was. So it's like everybody that knew that song would know what it's referring to. But we we only had to change like a few words, like <laughs> the children like it to you know to and then. Uh, and then changing one one lyric, like saying like Muno Itza and like naming like the, the characters of the Yo Gabba Gabba show, <laughs> like things like that. So, but you know, like it depends on the crowd and, and it's not like the song singing anything dirty anyway. It's just the, what you would think it would be singing about kind yeah. of thing. So yeah, I, I guess it goes along anywhere, you know, there's even a part in the video. I, I get a lot of messages from people where it's like, I love watching on Yo Gabba Gabba, especially that part where you sing your sister likes it and you laugh. Like, <laughs> okay, there there I go, your sister likes a banana. And I like laugh when I sing it. The real reason why I was doing that is because my sister, I, I was able to invite her and my nephews. So it was like I was singing it to her. And I looked at her and I pointed and laughed with my three-year-old nephew there. You know, so it was like <laughs> But yeah, that's, that's, I mean, the song's not dirty, but it's, I, I would think it's dirty, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. So they got to be there for the, the filming of the show. My sister and my, my nephew. Yeah. It was got to hang out and yeah. Christian and the Aquabat dudes, they were all really like cool about that. So they were like, yeah, bring your family, bring your friends. So we got to take a bunch of pictures with everybody and all that. So I brought my salamander. I didn't have any family at the time. So <laughs> yep. I remember Salamander have a good time. Oh man, yeah, up front, up front and center. <laughs> Sammy the Salamander, right? Isn't it? Never eaten so many bananas in his life. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that was what we got paid. We got paid in bananas. Oh yeah. Well, enough bananas you can resell them and make some real money. Turn a profit. Exactly. <laughs> I want to go back to the before Agrolites. The origin story. Several bands came together from the LA scene to uh, back Derek Morgan is kind of the story I know, but I know there's just a lot more details than than that. So let's kind of go into this a little bit. So Rhythm Doctors, I know Rhythm Doctors was was the band you were in, right, Jesse? Yeah. What was the band you were in, Roger? It was a band called The Vessels. Okay, so you were in The Vessels? Yeah. Okay, so what happens? I assume you guys are already friend bands and stuff, but there's some... What is the Derek Morgan element in this record that's going to happen that doesn't happen? Yeah, so Derek Morgan was coming to town, and uh, they it was our our original guitar player Brian Dixon, okay, who who had set set up the band. It was at the Whiskey a Go Go, 
in, uh, I believe it was like the year, maybe 2001 or so. And um, Brian put together a band called the Rough and Tough All-Stars, which was members of Hepcat and and uh, Rhythm Doctors, pretty much. Okay. And that was like the, the, the start off of it was that live show at the Whiskey. Uh, shortly after that, I guess Brian was somehow got in contact with Derek Morgan and his people and talked to him about recording a record for him. And, you know, I think Brian Dixon would be the one to ask more about it, but it was like, we're going to write a record. We got a bunch of, we'll write a bunch of songs and just create a whole bunch of tunes for you to sing and get you in the studio and do your part, you know? And I guess he was totally down for that at the time. So Brian put together like a ska session and he put together a reggae session and he pretty much called all his favorite musicians. So Roger being one of them, uh, Corey Horn, guys from Dynamic Pressure, guys from C-Spot, guys from Hepcat. And we had all these like multiple sessions and he also had a lot of guys write songs like I wrote some reggae tunes. Chris Murray wrote a few songs. Uh, Lino Trujillo from Hepcat wrote a song. Um, Brad Pate wrote some songs. Even Brian Dixon had a song or two. So we had a lot of material. And uh, that was it. We did the whole thing. Uh, Chris Murray recorded the, the uh, scratch vocals for it. And I really don't know the detailed story as far as why it never came out. I think once Brian had sent him the tunes, uh, I believe that Derek Morgan was more into doing more modern day sounding stuff because we were emulating his old things, you know? Mm. So it was a lot of like old school ska and skinhead reggae and rocksteady. So it just kind of got buried. But with those sessions, it was like so many musicians clicking and getting together that that's how we formed the agrolytes was, Hey, let's, uh, let's call our favorite dudes. So Roger was one of them. Uh, Dan Boer from dynamic pressure, Corey Horn drumming, who was original actor from the agrolytes with us at the time. So it was kind of like that. So even though the Derek Morgan stuff never got released, a band got formed out of it, which ended up becoming the agrolytes. Well, yeah, when are we going to get the uh, the demos released? As a, <laughs> I don't know. As a, I, it's I, got I, Chris Murray on vocals. Yeah. yeah, I know. Well, I don't know who you'd have to talk to about <laughs> getting that out, but there is a, a, a long list of songs and uh, pretty much a full album uh, of tunes. Did you guys take any of those songs with you into other projects or do they sort of stay there? No, actually, there was a lot of rhythms. Uh, there was a there is for example there was a one skinhead reggae instrumental song that was that we just called Captain Morgan, mm. and obviously because it's Derek Morgan, and uh, that was a song that the Agrolites took. But I don't even know if the Agrolites ever put it on anything. We Agrolites have done so many things too in the last twenty years that I, I can't even recollect of like what songs we had or. You know what I mean? So yeah, but yeah, that we used to play it live a lot. You remember that one, Roger? Captain Morgan and yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. We had another song yeah. called "Straighten Up," which was another skinhead reggae instrumental that the Agrolites were doing in the early days. That was 
taken from that Derek Morgan session, which is one a rhythm that Brian Dixon had written. So yeah, there there was stuff, but I don't think there's any uh any tune that came out of that that actually got released. Now, I was reading that you guys backed a bunch of well s- several other Jamaican legends like Prince Buster and Joseph Hill from Culture. Was this all in that pre-Agrilites era or is this like the Agrilites? Uh yeah, Prince Buster was definitely I think it was it was already Agrilites by that point. Um Early stages, my memory sucks. Jesse has the great memory, but yeah, it was the early stages of the band. Prince Buster was at the Sierra Nevada uh, World Music Festival. Yeah, we were already established. The Joseph Hill thing is just in Wikipedia. We never backed up Joseph Hill. Oh, that's that didn't happen. Okay. No, no, but I think that we were on maybe like a heartbeat thing, like that Everton Blender thing. It was like an Everton, and Roger, you could probably get more on that, but there's an Everton Blender album that came out called King Man that uh, Chris Wilson had released and Roger and Jay and Dave Fuentes and like some Agrilite members and Brian Dixon did some engineering. So we all played on that, which I think Joseph Hill might've been on that, but somehow it came out that we backed up Joseph Hill, but no, we never backed up Joseph Hill from culture. Did Prince Buster for sure. Was this Brian Dixon's doing? I think at the time you had a band that was just kind of like, you know, hot. Like we were, I mean, I'm trying to, take the ego out of it obviously but it was looking back it was like this band that was really just new i think the 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 music we were doing was was new ish you know we knew of obviously dynamic pressure rhythm doctors and vessels but for the most part there was a lot of the spotlight was on us and so we we kind of got offered a lot of cool things at that point i think it i guess what i'm trying to say is it came effortlessly you know it wasn't like at that point, we really it had there was definitely was no management. There was no um, even at that point, there's no like leader mentality. Like you know, you kind of grow up and you you kind of turn into that. But we just go with the flow kind of thing. And I think you had people like Eric Kohler, Junior Francis. You had a lot of people that kind of saw the potential in us. And then you know, next thing you know, we're at World Sierra Music Festival, back in Fritz Buster. You know, so a lot of these things we didn't have to really go out and seek it. It was kind of just they came to us and I, that was, that one felt like it was one of them, you know, where it just kind of happened. The concept of the band playing skinhead reggae, but also calling it dirty reggae, you know, kind of explaining how it was unique to you guys. And as, you know, as LA musicians from this era, did that come quickly? Did you, cause it seemed like you guys came out of the gate with a clear concept and a clear idea of who you were. Yeah, everybody had has their story of how the term dirty reggae evolved. Like I could tell my story and another guy could tell his. But uh it really was just what we were calling that kind of sound in those days. Nobody nobody at that time was touching that simmerip, you know, upsetters kind of I mean, there was dynamic pressure, there was a the rhythm doctors, there was the vessels, you know. But that was you guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, yeah, but I mean, there was nobody really tokening what it was. There yeah. was Hepcat. Hepcat was the guys that came out of the thing and everybody was doing third wave ska and then Hepcat came out doing the OG stuff, you know? Yeah. So as far as skinhead reggae, that was just stuff you'd hear DJs play in between the sets at the, at the uh, venues. So it was like, 
when the Agrolite started, it was like, yo, man, let's just play that like gritty sound, man, that gritty everybody in one room. And, you know, sometimes the, the mistakes in the song make the song even better. You can't wait for that like wrong note to hit because that's what makes it so raw and dirty. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's why that's where it came from. I was like, yo, let's call this dirty reggae. That's what it is. Dirty reggae. And then uh, like the Agrolites, when we, when we were recording at uh, Signet Sound Deluxe, we were recording for free after hours when the studio would be shut down. We'd like literally set up our gear at like 11 o'clock at night and record till like four in the morning, you know, and we just run rhythms. Everybody would just get in the room and just go for it. And Brian Dixon would press record. So that's kind of like where that came from. And the Dirty Reggae, there was like a song that needed vocals. I got in the vocal booth. And I was thinking of James Brown at the time where we need like this chant, you know, like, like, say it loud. I'm black and proud. Like one of those kind of things. And yeah. it was like, yo, let's just get everybody in the room and yell like, I'm going to say whatever. Like, what you feel? Everybody <laughs> yell, dirty reggae. And that's how it evolved. It was just like that. Like, get in the room and yell dirty reggae. Okay. So that, and then that ended up being a tune that we liked. And it was like, yo. That's what we're doing. Let's call it Dirty Reggae. Let's call the album Dirty Reggae. Let's token ourselves as Dirty Reggae. And that's what we should call it. The Agrolite's Dirty Reggae. Let's brand ourselves yeah. as Dirty Reggae, you know? Because we didn't want to really pigeonhole ourselves as calling ourselves skinhead reggae. Or... Sure. I mean, that, that, also, that also goes with the whole thing of, like, there was, like, a while with the band where it was like, okay, nobody's wearing pork pie hats. Nobody's wearing Fred Perry's. <laughs> Nobody's going to wear Ben Sherman's, you know, let's all just like do our own thing. Let's look like a punk rock band on stage. Let's look like, you know, let's, let's be gritty and dirty and mean and aggro and go for it. And <laughs> I think that's what kind of like separated us from the rest of the subculture in the scene was we were the guys that were like going out of bounds with it, you know? Yeah. I like the dark, just kind of the dark clothes. Just, it's kind of a cool look. It's cool, but it's not like, cool like the way Hap hepcat looks like real stylish it's more just not nah, it's cool like a gang yeah <laughs> yeah well, I mean, we, were, we, were, we really were just kind of emulating the what the clash was doing or anything like that like yeah and we all we all agreed like yo let's go uniform let's all do uniform kind of thing so we were wearing like jumpsuits or like you know one color you know there was a while when we were all spray painting our clothes and painting them up and everything. But <laughs> as long as it's uniform and we're all running around and jumping on stage, you know, yeah. that's it. Because a lot of the bands back in the day, too, were really great. But if you'd go watch a reggae band, it'd be like chill music, you know. Or if you'd go watch a ska band, it, it's got that whole like, uh, you know, like that 60s vibe. And I think the connection that we made was we knew that the skinhead reggae subculture and just reggae in general was kind of like the soundtrack to all the punk rock bands throughout the seventies, you know, and, and uh, early eighties, you know, there was a two tone scene, which was amazing, but the old school sky, everybody was listening to that in the UK. So it was like, let's be punk rockers on stage, playing it as close to the Jamaicans as we can. But knowing none of us are Jamaican, let's make our own name. Let's call it Dirty Reggae. <laughs> like, just like the specials called it Two Tone, you know, with the Jerry Dammers. I think Jerry Dammers token that, right, Raj? Two Tone? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, one of those guys. Yeah, yeah I'm pretty sure it was Jerry Dammers. Yeah. So it's kind of like let's create our own cult, our own uh, subculture, our own scene. Call it dirty reggae, and hopefully it'll stick. So your first album, Dirty Reggae, um, in particular, there's, it's there's like a lot of instrumentals, just like kind of cool grooves, and then there's like a lot of the times the vocals, like you're saying, they seem like they're not like traditional verse chorus. Sometimes they're just like you kind of hyping up the song. Yeah. Um, how much of that was you making up in the spot versus, you know, really writing it out? Honestly, probably about 90% of it. <laughs> I, I'm not like really uh, like dirty, dirty reggae to this day. I don't know what I'm saying. I just kind of, Hey, go in the room and go in the room and yell shit. Okay. Cool. <laughs> I love the one. One of the ones I love on the first album is a uh, stampede, like your whole beginning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was always just everybody loved the old, you know, the old classics, like uh, just how those old skinhead reggae instrumentals or whatever would start off with those weird, you are the witch doctor, and I am the, <laughs> under, you know, like stuff like that, that Lee Perry and the Upsetter stuff or, yeah, or uh, hey, brother, the coffin, uh, you know, stuff like that, where just go for it. And so we'd come up with goofy intros thinking it sounded like those old Jamaican tunes and do that. I like this. The stampede is like, um, it just starts out like kind of like this threat, kind of like the stampede's coming for you. Yeah, make way or you're bound to get stopped. <laughs> and then it just goes into this awesome groove. <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about briefly, um, Corey, your original drummer. Yep. Cause we just had, we just did an episode with, uh, Eugene Hoots from Gogo Bordello, which he's, he's in that band now. Yeah the grooves on that first record are so good. Like just so deep. Yeah. Corey had that signature fill in the beginning of hot stop. That's like the intro and that, that chicka da dot dot chicka da dot dot chicka da dot dot. Like right in the beginning of that record, that fill that Corey does kind of established like the way the agrolytes have to sound for the next 20, you know, till yeah. today. it's like that fill and the way that Corey played that snare, you know, that, cracked out you know distorted s- snare fill high know? pitch yeah yeah exactly i think of that i just do think of the drums on the first record when i think of agrolytes it kind of like defines it for me as well yeah i, I was reading that um you guys were saying that the, that the music just kind of flowed out pretty pretty easily on this first record just because you guys were so so deep into listening to this music that you just were kind of just very present in it. Is that how you remember the, the, the dirty reggae sessions? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a trip. Cause you not only had the effortless vibe going with it, but you also had, I mean, you, you're young, you know, it's like now, Jesse, what are you? 42, I'm 41. And at that point we're like in our young 20s. So it, it's one of those things where, you know, you don't have time to, to overthink it really. It's just, you're excited. Like Jesse said, to be in a studio. And, um, I think that's one of the kind of the things that, that hinders you as you get older as an artist, you know, I look back and kind of ignorance is bliss kind of thing. You just go with the flow and sometimes you get some real uh, creative magic out of that. So I'm thankful for that, you know, cause we, you can't record that album. Now we couldn't do that. You know, there'd be too much overthinking and it'd be songs need more structure and we need this and that. Um, but you're right. Um, 
when you asked initially, it was effortless. It just kind of went with the flow. Yeah, you just hear like a oh, this is a cool, this is a cool beat, or this is a cool key- keyboard part. Let's go with it. Like that kind of that kind of energy, right? It really was like that too. Yeah, I mean, I, Roger, you probably remember this, but that song "Hot Stop." It was one of those nights we went to Signet. Signet was closed, the studio, and it was maybe ten or eleven at night. We all got in there, set up our stuff, and uh, it got to a point to where it was like everybody just took a nap and then woke up. <laughs> right, Raj? Am I telling this correctly? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's kind of just woke up at three in the morning or something like yeah. that. And and then let's go in there. <laughs> yeah, we went in there and recorded it. And I think we got the beers flowing by that time. Everybody was kind of drinking a little bit, but it was like, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's just go for it. Yeah. And then we would we would call things out like uh, Roger and Jay or Brian. Like it'd be like, "Yo, do this style, like uh, this kind of rhythm, blood, blood, blood and fire rhythm, or or pop a top or half time." You know, like we'd call out like these different things that we liked, and then we just kind of write a like just go for it. Like just everybody would start jamming it out, and then all of a sudden it'd be like, "Okay, cool, three minutes." After three. Three minutes and thirty seconds. Press stop. Okay, that's the song. <laughs> yeah. One take. One take. It's done. Yeah. Fade them out. Yeah. Well, well that's what we would do. On, I think everything faded yeah. out. No, yeah. I mean we were everything faded out. <laughs> All the songs. We had no stops. Everything faded. I think to this day, <laughs> I don't even know if there's a single Agrolite song that stops. I think everything fades out because that's the way we've always written shit. So, do you remember the the writing or the recording of Pop the Trunk? No, no, it was it's all a blur really. Um I think we were just kinda in one of those days where we we're kinda pumping out rhythms, you know, and uh I think that's one that kinda went with it. Yeah, that was one of those just rhythms that we we had tracked. I know that I I recorded the vocals on that like maybe a few days later. And uh Lino Trujillo from Hepcat, I was talking to him about it. And I was like, I got an idea for the lyrics about, I want to have a song about booty shaking, (laughs) like shake your ass. You know, there's like doing the butt and there's like the rump shaker. All I want to do is zoom, 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 and a boom, boom, like stuff like that. I was like, it seems like all the big popular songs are about shaking your ass. So I talked to Lino about it and uh, I started singing him the melody, like if I came to get loose. Shake caboose, you know. <laughs> and then uh if it came to feel funk, and Lito's like, Yeah, man. And we both are like, pop the trunk. All right, that's it. And Lito's like, Yeah, bro. So that that I remember that for for uh definitely was the the pop the trunk idea of the vocal nice. lyrics. Yeah. But the rhythm was just, yeah, it's the agrolytes getting together. I don't even know who that was always just somebody calling out a chord progression and and just going for it, you know, like three and a half minutes of jamming out live, you know? I, I read that a lot, a lot of the songs start with uh, Roger with keyboard parts you come up with. Is that true? Uh, I think, you know, moving, moving past the first album, um, it, it, it's kind of like a Lennon McCartney thing with me and Jesse. I think that it's, you know, there's songs that, that Jesse has written the music to and the lyrics and I've written the music to and the lyrics and then there's songs where it's like we kind of collab on it and there's songs where it'll start with a keyboard or or um music you know there's it's it's every album kind of has its 
I think every album past Dirty Reggae was was more conforming to what I just described. You know, the Dirty Reggae is unique in because there was no game plan, there was no hope for the band. There was no like aspirations at that point. With the, the, even making the record wasn't even right. We didn't even know we were making a record. Right. We were just jamming out and recording. Right. And so, so to answer your question, yeah, I mean, there's a, tons of songs that that are just start with you know a melody or. But that's the way I start when I write a song, regardless, you know, sit by the keyboard and and you start with the melody. I think that I'll tell younger artists that a lot of songs, I, I think when we hear songs come out, they're very sterile and generic because someone like a vocalist will, will approach a song and start singing. But the actual melody of their their vocals is not a melody. You know, it, it's just straightforward kind of monotone thing and so i think some of the most successful songs that have ever been written the the actual you know the lyrical meter and melody is, is something that you can hum to without any lyrics you know so i think a successful song kind of starts there you know you can have a song with no lyrics it can be an instrumental and then after the fact throw some poetry to it you know kind of like elton john did with his you know whatever his uh what's the name bernie or uh his writing partner and uh I, you know, most of the time you'll you'll be successful with that, you know, because people want to hear songs that they can sing to. And I think that helps them sing to it when it has an actual melody. So um, and I think that's why a lot of, you know, songwriters, you know, are able to jump on an instrument like a, a guitar or a piano because they're able to to, you know, do both, you know, and not um, they have the hands free to kind of play the melody and sing and do the rhythm or whatnot. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So um, the scene, the the traditional ska reggae scene of LA, kind of in the in the before you guys form into the early years, it starts out with um, Steady Beat, right? Steady Beat, Luis is the one kind of mostly putting on these shows. Yeah, Luis used to do. I remember back when the Rhythm Doctors were playing, or even before the Rhythm Doctors was playing, uh, Luis would have at least monthly at the Whiskey a Go Go a ska show there would there would always be a ska show and he'd have like the blackpool compilations and all those that's actually how i heard of hepcat and c spot was through luis's comps mm. so yeah he was the guy that was keeping that uh that's i don't know if he started or kept it but that traditional ska old school scene he was like the guy, you know? Yeah. So he stopped doing shows in like 2002, which is when you guys. Pretty much when, when we started. <laughs> but then um, Chris Murray started doing the Blue Beat Lounge in 2003. And I, yeah. I was with Brian Dixon, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. At the Knitting Factory in uh, LA. So it was like every Tuesday, I believe, right? Every Tuesday night. Yeah. In the small room at the Knitting Factory. So a lot of the audience that Luis had cultivated sort of shifts over to Knitting Factory because Chris. Even though Chris isn't strictly, you know, he allowed variety there. He he was coming from the traditional point of view and he kind of centered that music. Yeah, definitely. So he told me that Agrilites played the second Blue Beat Lounge show. Do you happen to remember that? Like Roger, my my, my memories are blurred <laughs> too, but if he said that, I'll take his word for it. I'll tell you that, you know. I'm sure I'm sure it's correct. I I'm definitely sure because I remember the first Agrilite show that we've ever done was at the Whiskey A Go-Go. And uh, 
I don't remember the year. That was obviously 2002 sometime, but yeah, I'm sure it was probably right there in one of those first gigs we've ever played. Blue Beat Lounge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That definitely got us our start as far as playing live, you know, live gigs. Because we were like, it's like we, we were saying earlier, we were just in the studio making music with, with our favorite dudes, like the guys that we respected and loved the most as far as the uh, old school Scots reggae scene, you know. So this scene, this this traditional, mostly ska, right? I mean, this traditional ska scene is kind of your scene initially. Yes. Even though yeah, you're, we, you're not a ska band. No. <laughs> thanks for thanks for saying that because it's, it's definitely true. <laughs> We're not a ska band. Okay. You do not have any ska songs at all, do you? Uh, on our any of our albums? No, we do not play ska whatsoever. Not a single? Do you ever throw a ska song in your live set? We have in the last 20 years. We sure have. We've done a... <laughs> What's that song called, Raj? The uh, Jackie Me Too one that we've been playing a lot? Yeah, we'll dabble. It's Killer Diller. We'll jump into all kinds of ska. Um, flavor, you know, the specials. And, and we'll just have fun with some of the tunes at the end of the set. Um, but, but you know, even, you know, when I hear what we do ska-wise, we're, that's not our strength. You know, it's, it's just we know the music and we can play it, but... The Agrolytes, it, it's just funny. Like, it, you know, listening back to us playing ska music, it, there's something about it. You know, I guess it's an aggro taste of ska, but, <laughs> you know, definitely not on the same tier as your Hepcats or your Slackers. Yeah, we don't, we don't do it. We don't do it justice like, like the, like the, the other bands do. You know what I mean? It's not our, it's not our forte. <laughs> but to reiterate for everyone listening out there, zero ska songs on Agrolytes albums. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Put that out there. That, that's, that is 100% <laughs> correct. Not a single Scott song on any Agrolite record. Um, so in, in the early 2000s, you also have, there is a segment of this new reggae that's coming out. Um, a lot of these bands are sort of inspired by Sublime, even though Sublime's sort of a all over the place band. There's sort of like these, you know, Slightly Stupid, Pepper, all these kind of bands are, are coming out around that same time. And they're creating this reggae scene in uh, California. This is like, you guys do not really go in the same direction or have the same crowd at all, do you? Not really, but over the years, we've always had a respect for those groups. You know, like Slightly Stupid has brought us out on tour and it, it, does, hmm. it does mix together in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a big gap for sure. You know, it's two different scenes. It's it really is two different genres. You know, I think I mean, don't get me started on that scene because I, I I have, you know, really close friends in that scene. And I, I, I mean, over the years, I've, I've been, uh, you know, being able to write and produce for different bands in that scene. But but it sometimes when a band calls themselves reggae, it's really not reggae. You know, it's, it's kind of like what we call ourselves reggae. It's, kind of not really reggae it's influenced by reggae but it's not reggae per se you know so i feel like it's almost like two different extremes of of what what bands call themselves as reggae music nowadays you know so on the playground we don't really we're we're at two different opposite ends and like jesse said that's not to say that you we can't find the common denominator in there you know we've toured with slightly stupid and we've been on those festivals but if you're if you're a, a fan out there you know it's 
you come for a certain sound or a certain feel uh, and, and Agrolytes versus a slightly stupid or revolution or pepper, you know, they offer a feel that's more congruent with themselves. And, and we definitely are kind of on the outskirts of that, you know, and it's rough too, over the years, we don't really have, you know, I guess we'll play Europe and we'll play with some opening bands that played, you know, the early Jamaican stuff. But for the most part, we really don't have bands that sound exactly like the Agrolytes. So it's been a challenge, you know, to kind of like, where do we fit in, you know, playing with flogging Molly, dropkick Murphy's on one tour and then play opening up for slightly stupid on another tour. You know, it's like what band can really do that. It's pretty, pretty crazy to think about that. So. Going out with social distortion and things like that, you know, <laughs> right. That scene is definitely not ours. It's not to say we didn't try, you know, I mean, look at those, that's where the dollar signs are. You know, you want to be successful. Where, where, where do you go? And not to say we're money hungry, but come on, you know, as an artist, you kind of, you know, think the marketing and you think like a business. And so that scene kind of thrives, um, especially now more than ever, I think, with, with the, being financially successful and whatnot. And that's just not our bag, you know? Yeah, that's I don't know much about that scene, but they, they seem they seem insular and a subculture as well. Like it doesn't seem, quote unquote, mainstream, but it is big. Yeah. Like there is a lot of people that are going to those shows i think a lot of a lot of uh bands a part of that that subculture are influenced by sublime which i give 100 respect uh 100 respect to because i even like even back in the mid 90s when i was playing in the rhythm doctors i i love sublime stuff you know i loved what they were doing with that sound but um i think a lot of the modern day bands um listen to sublime and that's about it you know they don't go deeper than that you know mm-hmm. and kind of keep it at that rather than digging in deeper to like the old stuff so we can't really categorize which is no problem there's nothing wrong with that but it's like a lot of bands a lot of bands create themselves obviously obviously off of things that they're influenced by you know so it just kind of like I don't want to say waters it down because that's not true either. It's another form of, of a uh, style of music. Well, it's just, it's just starting your influence from a different place. Like, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that just went into a different place than what the Agrolytes were influenced by. Yeah. You know, so that's the best way I could describe it. It's like, like Roger said, it's not our bag where we weren't influenced sure. by that with what we created our band as, you know, but a lot of bands that are popular in that scene, they were influenced by sublime and, and grew up on that, you know, and didn't dig deep into the roots of Jamaican music, you know? So what, what bands like um, when you're opening for a band bigger than you, what, what bands do you feel like you've done the best with? Like their audience has dug you the most. Hmm. Flog and Molly definitely has a very open scene, you know, open-minded. Um, I, yeah, that is a good question because it, I feel that as long as you give it to them and you give it all the energy and you, you know, you entertain the audience, they're going to fall in love with you. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, again, not like Roger said, not trying to be egotistical, but it's like, that was always the thing about the Agalites was let's give them everything we got. Even if we got nothing to do with this scene, let's show them what we're all about. Hopefully we'll gain some fans along the way. I was talking to David Hilliard from uh, Slackers a little while back, and he said um, 
he's like, because he was talking about, you know, this is like the slackers, you know, I feel like we're a long, we're a long band. We need to play like an hour and a half, you know, the first half hour, we're just getting warmed up. He's like, Agrilites, though, that's a band, best 30 minute set band out there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe, maybe at one time we were like, you know, we used to, there was back in the day we would rehearse like three times a week, whether we had a show or not, you know, and we were trying to be like the JBs where we would, you know, uh, intertwine song to song and have interludes between the tunes and, and never have a moment to stop and talk to the audience, you know? So I think that's what Hilliard means. Like, like the, the slackers, I, I've played guitar for the slackers on a lot of tours and it's very, uh, you know, uh, what do you call the like uh, with the interactive with the audience where they sit and they talk and Vic will go on to a story. And yeah. It'll be like 10 minutes of Vic talking to the audience. You know? And they, they jam out some songs, get some solo. Yeah. yeah. People love that kind of thing, you know? And I think what Hilliard might've been referring to is, you know, back in the day we were like, let's talk and all freaking just show, you know, <laughs> let's, let's just go for it and kill him with the music. And you know, that was it. So another question about Dirty Reggae. What is this? What is the label it comes out on? It's like a local LA label. Yeah, it was called Axe Records. Okay. And uh, it was a friend of ours named David Weens. He played trombone for Let's Go Bowling based out of Fresno. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know David. Yeah. So Dave started Axe Records with our previous manager, Dion Watts. And Dion Watts was like a big name, you know, because he. He tour managed uh, Bad Manners and uh, uh, Hepcat back in the day. Like he was just like he was like the the older skinhead guy from San Francisco that everybody knew, you know. So and they came to us saying, "Hey, we like your stuff. We want to make make a record. We're going to call it Axe the label." We couldn't resist it. Now that you know, so. That's how that whole thing formed was with Axe Records. I don't think Axe really put out too many things. Mm. I think the Agrilites Dirty Reggae album might have been like one out of the two or three full length <laughs> albums that they ever did. They did some 45s, you know, but um, I don't know. That's my memory of it was it was Dave Weens and Dion Watts that like really got us going because they got the distribution and started getting getting the word out there about who we were. So when does uh Tim Armstrong come into the picture? Cause your next record comes out on Hellcat. Yeah. Shortly after that. Uh, I don't know really the story of it. Uh, I never, I mean, I met Tim Armstrong a couple times here and there, just shaking his hand as a fan of rancid. And, uh, but I don't know. I've heard stories like, our old bass player, Jay Bonner, lived in L.A. and ran into Tim, and he had heard our stuff. They were at, like, a pizza restaurant. And then also, like, our guitar player, Brian Dixon, ran into Chris LaSalle at Hellcat and gave him an Agrilites, like, a demo or something. But I, I really can't tell the – all I know is Tim Armstrong got hip and heard who we were and really liked it and gave us that chance. So. Once it was like, that was it. He put us out on the, one of those Give Him the Boot compilations. And, uh, yeah, that, I mean, Tim, like, there's, there's people to think that I, I really want to give mad, like, crazy respect to would be 
Dave Weens and Dion Watts from Axe Records, Tim Armstrong from Hellcat, and then also Christian Jacobs from Yakovets for the banana thing. But without those three different things, I don't think the Agolites would have gotten the crowd response that, you know, we've had over the last 20 years because those are the guys that exposed us to pretty much our fan base that still exists today. Yeah. So what was, so tell me the, the, the first thing you release on Hellcat is just self-titled. Um, it, to me, it has a pretty similar vibe to dirty reggae, maybe not quite as rough, but similar. Did you kind of go into the record with a similar attitude? Yeah, because after the dirty reggae thing happened, we never stopped demoing. We were still doing the same thing at Signet Sound Deluxe, you know. Uh, Brian was still engineering and it was still, everything was still the same process, you know. It was just jamming out and recording things. And we've got, I don't know, Roger, how many demos would you say that we have that we never even released? Like maybe 150, <laughs> you know? Uh, 150, dang. Ah, maybe more? I'm serious. I, like, I, I don't know, to be honest with you. Think about the, the whole catalog of, of, of all of our albums. We've got at least 100 songs, you know? So demos, oh, we've man. got, shit, we, we were recording in, in, in Jay Bonner's garage for a long time. I mean, we've always gone with the same process. So, Well, what happened is a lot of those demos, that my recollection is that they actually matured into one of the songs, especially that second album. You had a band that, that had no expectations on the first album. And then you have the second album where, where there was expectations. You know, you're signed to Hellcat. It's it's right there. It's obvious. This is an album. This is what you guys need to do. Um, and so I think at that point, you know, you have songs like Mr. Misery, you know, and, and, and I remember these songs, Love Isn't Love. They all started from demos that we would do. And then it would they would mature into the songs that you hear on the album. Um, and that's my recollection is that a lot of think about that whole album, I think one of those songs was pretty much a demo as opposed to the first album. There was no demo. It's like, you're in the studio. Let's just do it. Yeah. We were doing a lot of those, uh, the self-titled record. We were doing a lot of those demos in Rancho Cucamonga in our bass player, Jay Bonner's garage. Mm. And we would demo those. So from there on out. Yeah. We was like, and, and the funny thing is uh, when Tim Armstrong did the uh, poet's life record, that we were we were uh, blessed to be the backing band on. We got signed to Hellcat after the the uh, give him the boot comp, and uh, he called us and was like, "Okay, the Hellcat was going to give us the studio time and all that, and make the self titled record." But Tim wanted to get with us for I don't remember if it was like four or five days, but before we started recording the actual self titled record. <laughs> so we got in the studio and uh tim was with us and he'd sit down and show us all the songs that he had written you know uh i only wanted what was best for you or, or translator and so on you know uh and he'd play them on the acoustic guitar and we'd be like well what do you want us to do with it And he's like i don't know make them dirty reggae <laughs> and, and that's pretty much what we did we said okay so he'd go in the scratch vocal booth and it would be the same thing, the same process of how we recorded Dirty Reggae. Like, okay, guys, call this rhythm out. What kind of style you want to do? You want to do this like, uh, and we'd call out things like, let's do this like, uh, you know, 
the upsetters or let's do this like, you know, uh, the, the crystallites or, or so on. And we just play his chords, but in that style of reggae, you know, but a lot of those tunes, we kind of wasted our, not wasted, but we, we blew our mojo because we were so excited to record that it was like the stuff that we had already had in our demos, we were like doing on his, <laughs> on his song. And then by the time that, that uh, he was done and out, then it was like, okay, record the Agrolytes record. So we came back to our stuff and it's like, oh shit. This is we already did this on the Tim thing. We can't keep the same. Like we got to do it. You know? New songs, even though yeah. the yeah, e even though the Tim album came out what maybe three years after the or I don't know three years, but a few years after the self-titled record, it was all done within that same you know twelve days or ten days or whatever it was. You know, so he was smart. He knew to like have you guys do his <laughs> record before get his on the front. Well, no, I mean the the guys a the guy's honestly a musical genius with everything, you know, like he could take, he was able to take our sound and put like a DJ scratching, you know, like doing DJ, like scratching stuff over it. And, and it ends up being a great song, you know? So, I mean, the guy knew what he, what he was doing and thanks to him, it, it, it gave us that, uh, you know, the fan base that we got. So there's a recording that, um, he released in like 2005, I think, where it's a remix of the Alkaline Trio song Burn. Yeah, that's crazy that you even brought that up. That was done during that session. Oh, okay, that's I was wondering about that. Yeah, so so we did his songs. We did the whole Poet's Life thing. And then he said, do you remember this, Roger? Or no? Uh, vaguely, yeah. Yeah, so he said, hey, man, I, I got asked to, I don't know, it was like do, do my own mix of an Alkaline Trio song. So... He played us the song. I forget. I don't even remember the name of the tune. It's called Burn, I think. Burn? Okay. So he played us the Burn song. We figured out like the, the key that, was, that it was in. And Tim was able to just take the, the lead vocal and put the agrolytes behind it. So all we had to do was just learn the key that the song was in and make it a certain style of old school reggae. And then he did his magic and put them together and put his Tim, you know, Tim's uh magic dust over it and it became that so but honestly i i'd, I'd love to hear that because i i i haven't heard that in <laughs> 20 years or 15 years at least. i found it on like soundcloud or somewhere yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah that that was all done during the same time and none of you were probably were you, any of you even familiar with that alkaline trio song no i never heard the song in my <laughs> life i I've, I've heard of alkaline trio sure but I, I wasn't, you know, like me and Raj and everybody else on the band, we were all like old school, early reggae, Scott. We're from the I mean, Scots. I had an Alkaline Trio tattoo at the, at the He did, but he got it removed. What? <laughs> <laughs> what? Okay, we need to hear this story. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. That's the yes. whole other podcast. Yeah. Yeah, you could delete that from this part of the podcast. Yeah, that's no, don't. No. Don't delete it. If if, if Jesse says to delete anything, that means put it to the front. Of the <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Not listen to his delete remarks. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't really have an alkaline trio tattoo, did you? No, 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 no. No. <laughs> I had an alkaline water tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had the uh, alkaline battery Duracell. Hey. Battery. <laughs> I was I was just gonna say though that I mean not not knowing the song, not being familiar with the band, I mean that makes it 
a lot cooler to make a cover song of it because it's just chords and you're just putting your own your own thing to it i remember he he showed us the track and we figured out the key that the song was in and it, it, it i remember i don't remember the exact key i'm gonna just shoot out the chord e minor for some just for the hell of it but it was an easy it was an easy thing that the lead vocal could sing over yeah so we just made a rhythm and yeah he he did his magic over it so that that was that but i mean that was pretty pretty awesome for to be a, able to be a part i mean how many skinhead reggae influenced bands get to play the backing for you know a band like alkaline trio you know what i mean I think just you guys. <laughs> yeah, probably just us. Yeah. So, I mean, that's all thanks to Tim, you know, like the, the, like the things that he did for us, a K-Rock weenie roast and backing him up on that. And, yeah. Tell, tell, I want to hear about the K-Rock, K-Rock weenie roast. This was like 2007, I think. Yeah. So that was, I guess that was shortly after. Well, the thing with the poet's life was we didn't know what he was going to do with it. We had no idea. Like I said, we recorded that the, a few days before we recorded the self-titled record. So we didn't know what Tim was going to do. We were just happy that we were a part of it. And we heard, he, he ended up like releasing one song at a time on the internet. And we heard it with the rest of the world. So like we were hearing each song, song by song. And then it turned into like, yo, Tim's going to do a, a full length album of all the songs. And, then we got called to do videos with Tim, and then he did a series of music videos. And then he ended up releasing the, the full album with, like, it was like a double CD. One was a CD of the actual songs, and the other CD was like a DVD of all 10, 10 songs on video. But when it came out, I was like, in my, I, I thought this was amazing. Like, this is the coolest thing ever because people, are, and Tim was repping the Agrolites throughout the whole thing. You know, it wasn't like, we were just a backing band and he never mentioned us. Like he was hyping us up the whole time through. There's one music video where he's at a machete, the, the merch company, you know, at the time. And, and he's like wearing a bunch of different bands that are on Hellcats t-shirts. And it's all in the sequence of like 10 seconds, like, you know, like, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like a slideshow of him wearing all the shirts. And he and he, he like stops and he's got an Agrolite shirt, you know. Like Tim was repping the Agrolites like the whole time through. So when the Weenie Roast thing came up, his album was already out. He got asked to get on it, and he was like, "Yo, I'll get the Agrolites to do it." And uh, I mean, even there was like a time when he got asked to be on the Kevin and Bean show in the morning, mm-hmm. and I remember he wanted the full band to be in the studio with him to do the interview. But for some reason we weren't able to do it with, with the K rock or something. So he just did it on his own, but he mentioned us a million times over like Tim's the most humble dude ever. You know, he, he really did. He really did a lot for the band, you know, over the years. He's done a lot for the, the whole traditional ska scene, mm-hmm. reggae scene. I mean, I mean, Hellcat alone, that record label, was like you know what what it's a subsidiary off of, off of Epitaph and when Tim started Hellcat he wanted to put out like ska bands, psychobilly bands and punk bands. Yeah, the early bands are like Slackers, Pie Tasters, Hepcat, Hepcat. You know they're more traditional. The Gadgets, I think. The Gadgets, yeah. 
Um, by the time you guys are signed and the period you guys are in, which is the second half of the 2000s, I think yeah. it's pretty much you guys and uh, Westbound Train. Yeah. Uh, slackers, are, sorry, I think the Slackers are kind of finishing up their contract. So you guys are pretty much it representing like, you know, old school Jamaican music. Yeah. So back to back to your first um Hellcat album. There you said you know you had demos and some of them got used for Tim's album. Um but there still is like a lot of songs on that record. Well it, w- it wasn't demos that got used for Tim's album. It was the the, vibes, the, the, vibes. the rhythm like Yeah, yeah. Like the rhythm. The like the or the 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 how do you say it, Raj? Like you're better at words than I am. The rhythm, like the rhythm, or, or yeah, okay, <laughs> the rhythm, yeah, like the the vibe the of the song, yeah. yeah, the 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 style, the rhythm style of the song. It wouldn't be like our; it, they were all Tim's songs for sure. The way, the style that it was played, yeah, was was used on that, you know. So what I was gonna say is, you still have a lot of songs on that first record. It's a pretty long record. So did you te- does it did it just take more time to get new stuff or did you just have so much? No, because like Roger said, we were demoing like crazy. So again, we were demoing in Jay Bonner's garage in Rancho Cucamonga, and uh, yeah, we were we we never stopped. Like the thing was with the Agrolites, we toured Europe here and there over those first few years, like from two thousand two to two thousand four, but we never stopped rehearsing. And we never stopped demoing. You know, we were always recording. We were always in getting together and, and recording. Always. So we've that's what I was saying. We got a ton of ton of material that we've, you know, we we later on throw in and make into a song. So Yeah. All the all the demos that you guys were recording, what were you recording them on? Ah, geez, Raj, like what would you say? It was I don't know. Roger. Uh, it, 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 I think it varied from different whatever. I mean, at the time, you could have things that, I mean, Jesse would be singing into his phone as he was driving to the studio. You know, we'd record in Jay's garage. He had a little workstation, a uh, rolling workstation that was all in one kind of thing. And um, I think it was just get the idea down. You know, it wasn't like any kind of... Um, thought going into this needs to be a demo that is matured at any certain point. It's just like, get the idea down. I think the main thing over the recording gear that we had was just everybody willing and able to get together all live in a room and just start pounding out rhythms to, you know, come up with things like that for Countryman fiddle. That's a song. Um, I was thinking about, um, do you, do you recall the writing of that song? Yeah, that was a rhythm. We there was some sessions in Jay Bonner's garage, um, that we were doing, especially for that, mostly for that, all of for that record. Yeah, a lot of those. I mean, now that you say that, it comes back to me. I mean, if I think a lot of those rhythms, I think all of them. I think all of, all of the rhythms off that self-titled record came again. From- again, take the ego out of it, but I do remember there'd be times where. <laughs> Because me and Jay, you got to imagine at that point, you know, we're still new to each other. We're, we're, yeah. We know each other better, but me and Jay at that point knew we're like homies, homies. And then like Jesse and Brian and Corey came from the Rhythm Doctor. So I remember there would be some sessions where I would go to Ranch Cucamonga and it would just be me and Jay and recording rhythms. And then it'd be like now everyone's in the 
in the garage recording. And and so I remember a lot of those rhythms, like Love Isn't Love, Countryman Fiddle, all these things were just ideas that I would sit at the keyboard and start. And then Jay would kind of just record it. Uh, you know, the second album felt like that, Jesse. You can correct me if I'm wrong, because, you know, we'd get together for later albums all together. But I do remember a lot of the second album just kind of a real skeleton to it, you know, not because look at Countryman Fiddle. It's just two chords, you know, it's not it's crazy with with an organ line. And then Jesse would get it and it'd be a song after that, because now he he injects the lyrics. And for for my money, that's what makes the song is the hook and the lyrics and stuff. So uh, I, I think that that's how that second album felt, you know, Thunderfist, Jesse, you know what I mean? A lot of these songs. I do remember being in Jay's garage with, with the, the organ and just kind of creating the skeleton to it, you know, and I think that Jay would just kind of adapt the baseline to it. It would get fine tuned when we were getting in Signet. Um, but I think it would it would be the later albums like, you know, uh, that we would get together as a full band. I mean, do you remember getting together as a full band for that album in, in Jay's garage? You know what I mean? Self-titled? Yeah, the self-titled album. I remember like having ideas that i would do with jay and then we'd go and meet at signet i mean it's funny because i'm just thinking of this now like for some reason you know how when you smell something and it just reminds yeah. you like when you <laughs> when you said countryman fiddle i like got taken back to that moment that i was sitting at the organ and uh just because that line is is the easiest line it's like a nursery kind of rhyme line you know it's not some complex line and i remember that uh I even I even remember before that uh, burning bush, which is on Dirty Reggae. Mm -hmm. You and Jay getting together in the garage and forming that whole right, thing. right, exactly. And that would come from just being excited, you know, having this. Think about the chords on Burning Bush; they're kind of unorthodox chords, but it's kind of creepy and spooky, like the upsetters were. And and I remember being real happy about that because I lived in Glendora at the time, so I'd be riding on a piano, and then going to Jay's, and then Jay would. It, they would take different stages at that point. I think, like I said earlier, it's because there still was a dynamic in all of our relationships. You know, um, we were all just getting used to each other and and really growing down. I think that's another aspect of why the music came out the way it did is because not only did you have like a, a band that was that was fresh at doing this music, but our relationships with each other were kind of new. And, and when you have a friendship or a relationship with anybody. You know, you go through that honeymoon phase. And so, um, you know, for example, now me and Jesse hate each other's guts. But yeah. uh, you're lucky you got us together to talk yeah. about this thing. Dude. I can't remember the last time I talked to him, really. But uh, no, no, no. Me and Jesse have a uh, we're, we're um, yeah, we, we, it was a natural thing. I mean, all of us kind of gravitated towards each other because of the music. But over time, um, you know, it surpasses the music. And I think that was kind of, we kept the longevity of, especially me and Jesse still being in the band right now. But, but back then it wasn't the case, you know, Jesse was still, uh, you know, I was, he's still new to me and, and vice versa. So I think that when you're writing a song together, you, you can't really take it to the extreme of that intimacy, you know, like for example, now, I mean, geez, when we wrote for the last album, reggae now, you know, that, that, that whole, it's just a big leap, you know, it's like, I could just be in the same room with Jesse and, and now it's we know what time it is. You know, we know what each one of us can bring to the table. What smell do you remember from that time period? <laughs> no, no, no. I was saying when you said Countryman Fiddle, it just it took me back to that moment. Just like a certain smell takes you sure. to a certain moment. You know, there was no specific smell uh, right now. 
Um, the Agrolites definitely have a smell, but, but I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's the Agrolite smell? I need to know. Oh, it's the van, dude. Yeah, the van, dude. <laughs> Subway sandwiches for four days. Subway straight. sandwiches, uh, spilled Jaeger. <laughs> spilled Red Jaeger. Bull. <laughs> Red Bull. Um, yeah. There, there was a moment when we were when we were demoing for the self-titled record in Jay Bonner's garage. Somebody, I don't know who, but had this like color wheel, uh, like chord chart color wheel with like a spinner on it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and we would just flick it and spin it, and it would end on like E, and it would have this whole like, okay, you could write a song from E to A, or, you know, like something like this. So we'd be like, okay. Let's do that. Let's do this rhythm. And, and we'd start doing a rhythm on it and just go for that, you know? Yeah, the problem is with those, those uh, you thought that you came across something really cool and then and then quickly all the songs start sounding the same in a way. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. Because the chord wheel, the chord wheel is great. I mean, I think the other musicians listening to this know what we're talking about. It's like, it lets you know what relative chords you can play and it gives you ideas and lets you kind of think out of the box. But then... And, and you seem like you've, you've struck gold with it, but then every single song kind of has the same, uh, you know, uh, jump from chord to chord. And, and Right. I mean, it gets you outside of the box, but then it, it ends up being the box itself. Like, it comes back around. Right. Nailed it. Yeah. There's actually a lot of people don't know this, but uh, certain, it's the CDs only, but on the self-titled record, I believe, if you let it or the dirty reggae if you let it play there's like a naya bingy version or a naya bingy song that we got we were trying to do this vibe and on uh i think it's it might be on uh reggae hit la or four but no we, no the naya bingy songs no, no that's on dirty reggae that's on dirty reggae but oh. there's a countryman fiddle piano version hmm. oh yeah that it's yeah. it's uh late night after everybody left and it's just messing around with Jay and I'm playing the, the melody of the, the vocal part, not Roger's part, the ba, da, da, that's all Raj, but the bump, 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 bump. like I was just messing around on it. We ended up putting that as like a secret track on one of those after CDs, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah, I was just get in the room and record and, and, and go for it. And then later on, come up with the, you know, the, the vocals and all that. Dirty Reggae was the only one where the vocal stuff was written then and there. But self-titled, it was like, Raj, remember getting together and we wrote uh, Work to Do? We were like, let's do this kind of like, uh, you know, like uh, the Ethiopian style. Like, let's write like a nursery rhyme, like children's nursery kind of song, you know? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, Love Isn't Love, like songs like that. We would just get, me and Roger would do, get uh, together a lot. Roger would come out to my little, apartment in orange and we'd sit down and listen to these demos that we had and and start writing like lyrics and melodies to it you know it's yeah like, we'd pee off the side of his balcony <laughs> we'd pee off the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true too we'd piss off the side of the balcony what's wrong with the bathroom <laughs> well we didn't want to wake anybody up we were trying to be quiet <laughs> you guys are so polite <laughs> it was easier to just go in the balcony and take a piss off the off the ledge but yeah <laughs> So the your next record is Reggae and L, Reggae Hit LA. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to this cuz I feel like you guys were trying to be a little bit more experimental or a little bit challenged, yeah. Reggae Hit LA was the last one that we had with Jay and uh I think a lot of those demos 
Brian was bringing like a laptop with Pro Tools and recording in my parents' living room, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, Roger had a lot of rhythm ideas and, you know, so on. I had a few like like uh, free time. I would demo on GarageBand or whatever. And, and uh, but that's when me and Roger really started. Like on, on the self-titled, me and Roger were doing a lot of stuff together. But by Reggae Hit LA, it was like, all right. There was a Roger was living in Whittier at the time. And he had a little, you know, little uh, studio set up in his bedroom or whatever. And uh, we were just throwing out all the ideas and recording all the vocals there. And I remember, didn't you say like one of your, uh, you know, one of your neighbors or something, we thought that they were going to get mad, but they were like totally like, hey, play more. That sounds good or something like that. But <laughs> Yeah, I think. uh when you ask the question about experimental, it's to totally right about that. You know, I, I think there was kind of a conscious move to, to, you know, all of the Beatles or something like that, kind of get into the Sgt. Pepper, uh, you know, vibe of it all. And if you listen to that album, it's, you, you know, definitely, I think by that point, it's, you have a kind of a feeling where you could do, do no wrong because you've already... The Fluke was the first album, right? You kind of, okay, wow, people like this. And the second album, people gravitated towards that too. I think the third album was like, we had the confidence going in that you can kind of, you know, uh, just think think out of the box. And I mean, it's still like reggae. It's still reggae music. It's not like we played, you know, a different genre, influenced by a different genre. But, you know, there's sitar in there. We mic'd, we, we put the microphone to like a faucet and, and we yeah, we do. We try to get Lee Perry on that one, dude. We try to get all black arc. <laughs> there, there was one moment I remember too. We we like demoed, and we had like three really cool instrumental songs, and we combined them all into one. I think that song is called "Lightning and Thunder" or or, or something like that. But yeah, uh, it was like three different songs that we had, and we were like, okay, let's make this. Uh, let's let's combine them and make it like really weird, you know? But yeah, that's that's when we started getting weird. <laughs> we recorded at um, a studio called King Size here in LA, and it's a pretty famous studio. And I think that was our first kind of introduction to that studio. And, and like any studio, any musician out there will tell you that if, if they have a, you know, an ongoing relationship with a studio, it just creates a vibe. You get, you know, you you associate that studio and that that uh, that room and you know the instruments they have there built in. And that was the first one. Um, the first music that we would do there and, and kind of uh, that would lead into the next album four and whatnot. Cause the other two albums were at Signet sound. Uh, so this kind of, it kind of allowed us to kind of, you know, subconsciously we were kind of programmed with, okay, there's, this is the next chapter in whatever the Agrolytes is. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that at that point our careers were, we're kind of taking off whatever that meant at that point. But I think what we doing, like, you know, we had a tour with madness, Jesse, and, and we were um, really moving and shaking. And so there's a lot of confidence behind that album. And it, it's a shame that, you know, it's like, we really don't have quote unquote, any hits. I mean, off any album really, but you know, free time from that song, from that album, uh, I guess is, is a song that we incorporate in our set a lot, but a lot of the other songs are just, you know, we kind of did them for us. You know, they're really, um yeah just having fun you did a video for um the song reggae hit la that's got like a, that's like an all-star cameo cast isn't it yeah j mac uh the, the director that's all him 
that's all his uh his his uh idea around the video you know has all the I, I forget who the full roster is. I mean, Jesse probably knows better. He scouted out all the locations and everything. And uh, I don't remember who came up with the concept of the the video, but it was like, yo, let's get all the musicians that we know and, you know, all the scene people and throw them in the video and have them chant reggae hit LA. And J-Mac was able to make that happen. He found He found the locations for us to record at. And then when we weren't, like we only did one day driving around in some old school car and, you know, going to, you know, like uh, Echo Park and stuff like that. <laughs> but he actually got was able to contact all this list of bands and people that we wanted in the video and was able to get like a little cameo of them going reggae hit L.A., you know, like everyone from the Aquabats to Death by Stereo to. Rick Thorne, the professional bike, you know, BMX biker to, you know, uh, uh, Boss Harms, who does the dub club, really popular DJ, Joey Altruda, uh, so Hepcat, you know, so on and so on of people. So that's all thanks to J-Mac for, for doing that, for putting that whole thing together. Tell me a little bit about the song. It's kind of an anthem of sorts. I think that was a Roger Right, that was a Roger idea. Reggae hit LA. Yeah, just the uh, you know, again trying to write something catchy, and it was a, uh, you know, we had another song on that album called "We Came to Score." It's just this kind of chant tunes. Nothing really new as far as what the Agrolytes mo was. You know, like Jesse said, it kind of derives from the whole James Brown, you know, um, kind of shout thing where you have this theme and you shout it. Uh, it does kind of spew from. Um, Reggae hit the town. You know, Ethiopians have a song called "Reggae Hit the Town," and it 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 definitely came from that. I think the idea was was just ripping that and reggae hit LA, and uh, yeah, we love the word reggae. <laughs> <laughs> we also love the word fire. We we have fire yeah. in so many songs, <laughs> funky fire, fire girl, and so on and so on. But I don't know. That one definitely has a lot more like soul, like R and B influence. From, yeah. from what I could hear, yeah. Yeah, I listened to that song back, and I wish we could have recorded it different. You know, it sounds stupid to say that, but I think that uh, it could have just been more tighter, less of a room sound. It could have been e- just even more tighter, not tighter as far as performance, but tighter as far as the sonic sound of it. Like, just really, I don't know, in your face. Because that whole album just sounds like a roomy sound to me. And, and that's just me, you know, analyzing. There'll be times where I'll listen to our old stuff. I don't really do it often at all. But then when I do, it's like it's it's a trip because it's not how you remember it. You know, whatever point in your life, you know, like whatever, 15, 20 years later, you're like, oh, shit, this sounds different than I would. I would I remember it um, so that. Yeah, because it has a lot of, you know, like very just just almost Tower of Power ish kind of vibe, you know, yeah. I, could have just been a little tighter, just like boom, like in, like militant, you know, like very, like more of a, um, I don't know, I don't, I, I, I hope I'm getting across right, but just like, yeah, I get you, tight, yeah, the the hits, the hits have the mm-hmm. have the syncopation and hits, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I was reading so around uh, 2007, you, you toured with Dropkick Murphys. Mm-hmm. I read that you there were some shows where you you got booed by their crowd. Oh, that would happen a lot, yeah. Yeah, tell me about that. Well, I mean, 
we play old school reggae and a lot of the fans of Dropkick Murphys are just kind of, you know, you know, they, they, they're Dropkick Murphy, the Dropkick Murphy fans are the hard, most hardcore Dropkick Murphys fans. And the, the way that <laughs> after like a few weeks of, uh, maybe not a, like a, yeah, like a few weeks of touring with them, we would be playing and in the middle of uh, our set, the crowd would overtake the music and yell, let's go Murphy's. Let's go Murphy's like that kind of thing. So we decided to like pick up on that vibe and start playing a rhythm and let them chant. Let's go Murphy's for for five minutes, you know, (laughs) before we could even start doing our own song. So that would win things over. There was also, uh, you know, like there was a guy named Scruffy Wallace who was the bagpipe player at the time. He'd be standing in the back with his kilt on and he'd be wearing an Agrilite shirt on. You know, Ken Casey, the bass player at the Dropkick Murphys, would get on stage and say, hey, we only bring the bands that we respect and love on stage. This is one of those bands, you know, like those guys had our back fully. We had an Agrilite song from our self-titled record called Time to Get Tough. And we would have uh, uh, James Lynch, who's a guitar player at Dropkick Murphys, and uh, um, Tim, Tim Brennan, who was playing all, all the things, mandolin and the tin whistle and everything in the band, they would come up on stage and, and collaborate live in front of the audience. And we do like some punky reggae version of time to get tough for the audience. So they made it really, really good for us. You know what I mean? And I would never take back any of those tours with Dropkick Murphys because it definitely won over a whole other the thing was, we were never afraid of who we would go out on tour with. We not the band. The bands were always great, but the crowd, and uh, you know, it, it it. I feel in the long run, it really uh, made sense. You know what I mean? Those guys had a vision of bringing us out, and it worked. It worked overall in the end. But yeah, there was nights when when there was people spitting on. I remember Chicago House of Blues. There was people in the audience just spitting on the band. You know. <laughs> And it was like, all right, let's get through this, you know, like, let's give them what we got. And we went for it, you know, like, let's play it. You know, we never backed down. We never, we never bitched out or, or, you know, got afraid. Like we were, we always did it. So something I'm really proud of with the, with the band members and that we had at the time. And we were like out there to just do it. Like, we'll, we'll prove it to them. It was like. Let's prove it to them. Let's show them. Let's show them what we're all about. That's it. So. Yeah, it's interesting how certain bands have a diehard crowd and a diehard crowd that's like real yeah. picky. <laughs> I mean, I remember the Agrolites. We we did a tour later on in the years, maybe around maybe 2012, and we brought a few bands that we loved that we toured with from the Warp Tour. One of the bands was a band called Brothers of Brazil. And uh, what was the the Japanese group? Uh, P. Lander Z. Mm-hmm. We brought P. Lander oh, yeah. Z. And I remember Agrolite fans ready for the act. And I felt like it was like, a, like, a, like, like we're the Dropkick Murphys now. And P. Lander Z are trying to like get the crowd to like it. And I remember walking <laughs> around supporting P. Lander Z. And like Agrolite fans going like, what is this all about? These guys are wearing costumes and. You know, they're singing a song called So Many Mics and this and that, you know. And I remember, like, the guy Yellow and, and Red and, like, the dudes from P. Lander Z 
talking to us after their set going like, oh, no, this wasn't good. I don't know if this was right. It's like, no, dude, they'll like it. It's 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 good. It's going to be a good thing. Like this is just people need to be more open minded when you bring a band on tour to be your direct support or your opening act. Being a person in the crowd always has to know that that's a band that they love and respect. You know what I mean? It's odd that audiences assume that the band that you're bringing on tour isn't a band that you're bringing on tour. Like who yeah. is this band, like the band has to come out and tell them like, no, we chose this band. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. They think <laughs> that you're, they think you're the, the enemies of the band opening up. Like, yeah. you know, it's like, <laughs> that's not how it works. That's not how it is. It's like all these bands love each other, man. We're all, you know, it's, it, we're all from the same thing. So, yeah. So you guys, so it was, it was reggae. Now that's your most recent album, right? Yeah. That was in 2019. Yep. I love the song Pound for Pound, um, which you shot that video for. You're yep. like, in, you're like in a, what do you like call in it? the back of a box truck or something? Yeah. You're in the back of a box truck and you're throwing a little concert for people. I was thinking about that song and that video because I feel like you guys have, you guys have a vibe and you guys, your, your songs have a vibe. Like each song is its own vibe, but then there's the Agrilites vibe, right? Yeah. I feel like you can really just that 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 video and that song really is a good it's a good like single song to be like this is this is a good representation of the Agrilites vibe. I mean it's the song itself and then the way you guys are playing in the in the vehicle and everything. It's like you're bouncing around and having fun, but you look cool at the same time, you know? Yeah. Well, it was about what, how many years? I mean, we did after Reggae hit LA, we put out four. And uh, that was another one where it was just like we were trying to get out of the, I don't know, I guess like over the years, bands kind of mature and 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 try to go elsewhere from what they started with, you know? Yeah. So I think Reggae Hit LA was the, the leading thing to that, and 4 was even more. And uh, then we did uh, the Rugged Road thing, which was supposed to be a series of 45s that ended up being a record. But it was like from 2011 all the way to 2019 that we didn't have anything. So mm-hmm. Pound for Pound was one of those songs where it's like, hey, let's just be us. We know we, we've been around now for, you know, 15 plus years. We've toured 200 days a year throughout all those years. You know, let's let's give them let's give our audience what they want and let's get back to what we're all about and let's do it. So I think that's where the pound for pound song idea and lyrics came from was just like, let's, let's take it back. We're dirty reggae. We're that band. We're established. And that's it. Here we are. 2002. We knew what to do and made them understand 2019. We're still on the scene and we're still in demand. You know, it was like, <laughs> you know, and, and it was kind of like that cocky thing, you know, like, like, uh, like Derek Morgan, you know, uh, uh, singing about being the guy, you know, like, or Prince Buster singing about being the man. It was like one of those kind of tunes, like, yo, let's, let's make ourselves like, yeah, we're going to, we're the Agrilites and this is what we're all about. Take it or leave it. We know who our fans are and this is for the people that love us. So, yeah. Well, what was that concert like for the, that you shot for the video? It was cool. It was, uh, the guy that directed it, his name is Josh. I could look up his name later and give it to you, but Josh, uh, he, he recorded, you know, he, he put it all together and we pretty much, I think just went on our social media pages and 
said, hey, we're going to record at this place, show up, and if you want to be in the video, be in the video, you know. But the concept that he had was like, yeah, we, we were going to come out of a box truck and set up a sound system and play, and then two people will be there, and then, you know, the first minute through the song, ten people will be there, and then by the end, it's a big aggro reggae party, and that's what it was, you know. Yeah. It's a big party, so. We had a lot of faces of uh, just aggro fans, and it was really awesome to see people there and supporting us throughout the whole thing. You know, felt really professional. Like we felt, I felt like a pro <laughs> that day because he had he had like a little catering area, and you know, it was like all put together. <laughs> it was total DIY, but it was by him. But it was like it was just really rad to, you know, like we showed up and we were like, guys, like, hey, we got all these people here to see us. So we, it, 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 he was just playing the, the track from the record on a real loud, you know, sound system, and we were just lip singing to it. But it was like, it was awesome. Did you give him a concert after the video shoot? No, we had nothing set up. Everything was uh, uh, everything. We had no amps or anything. Everything was. <laughs> but the, there's there's a funny outtake where like the opening thing, I, I jump off uh, in the video. It looks cool because I jump off and it's cool. But the very first take when he goes, and action, I, I jumped <laughs> off and I went a little too far and I ate shit. I landed, I face landed on the floor. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash In Defense of Ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the In Defense of Ska Discord. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific In Defense of Ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of The Bands I Like Only Charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, we leave you by saying, Ska now more than ever. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.